Welcome to the Better Brand Story Podcast. Hope you are having a fabulous day. This podcast is all about helping brands learn how to tell a better brand story. Let's dive in. Let's talk about caribou. Sorry, green siren. Caribou for life. Um, so yes, born and raised in Minnesota. So of course I have a huge love for caribou coffee. Um, I got the chance to lead essentially brand experience at caribou coffee, um, and all of brand marketing when I was there. So I worked on everything from, I did, I had a big focus on packaging design and campaign development and, you know, everything from brief writing to reviewing key lines and reviewing color swatches on press. So I learned a ton about print technology. Um, I led our media efforts, um, all of our in-store signage, like worked a little bit on the caribou app and how the creative manifested in that touch point for the brand. So what a wild ride that was. I really enjoyed it. I was, I led marketing there for four years, uh, right before I moved to general mills and caribou, I think is a great example of having a similar product. Coffee is coffee is coffee. Like we even have more than one coffee company in Minnesota, right? Like there's Cameron's coffee in Shakopee, their headquarters. So caribou is a great example of having a really, I mean, coffee is a commodity crop, right? Not the coffee caribou buys. We're real picky about our coffee. I say we, cause like shout out to my caribou family. I love them so much. I text them weekly. Coffee is a commodity, but the way Starbucks delivers it and the way Pete's in LA delivers it and the way caribou delivers it in Minnesota and all around the world feels different again, because of the Uber and Lyft effect, right? Like caribou is really focused on Um, I think their slogan says it all life is short, stay awake for it. So they're focused on like making the most of the great energy and the optimism in your day by like just getting a jolt of caffeine. Right. And, and the service and the like day making service that caribou has. So caribou's purpose statement is, and this is public facing is to create day making experiences that spark a chain reaction of good. So we could have a whole nother podcast on why that's an awesome purpose statement, but that's what it is. So caribou is really focused on having a great product and a great interaction delivered in a humble, optimistic way that sets off this chain reaction of maybe I'm a little bit more generous with the tip I give the doorman or the helper at the airport or, you know, just this, this butterfly effect essentially of, of treating people well because you were treated well and you had this moment of care for yourself with coffee. And so caribou is a great example of a commodity benefit delivered in a unique way. And I, um, it's a really strong, they have very strong brand equity, which was very exciting to work on, to shepherd a brand that was so beloved and so well-known in Minnesota and around the world. There are caribous in the Middle East. A lot of people don't know that, but there are caribous in the UAE and Dubai. And so it's really a global brand. The other thing I want to say about caribou is that it's a great example of both solving problems and delivering joy. So, so this is a rare brand, I, not rare, but not every brand has a, the right to win in both of those spaces, right? And Caribou has so many different touch points and ways to interact with the brand that they do. So like they have order ahead on their app so that you don't have to wait in line. Problem solved. They uh, solve a problem of a coffee deficit. Like if you're a coffee drinker and it gets to be 10 o'clock and you've had coffee, that is a problem. That's a problem for me. So there's definitely a problem solving element for Caribou. But there's also this fantastic part of delivering joy as well. Like I know what my coffee order is at home or at Caribou. I could, I could list it out in my sleep. I probably have like everyone knows, <clears throat> excuse me. Everyone knows if they drink coffee, how they take it. But when the calendar turns to November one and you get a thoughtful stack of messaging that week about caribou's new holiday drinks, suddenly you really need a spicy mocha and you need it 
now at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday. So like that's a perfect example of that. It's not actually like I like to joke about not having coffee being a problem. That's not actually a problem. That is just delivering the joy of a seasonal flavor that makes you feel like you're embracing the holiday season. Like there's real science behind the psychology of sensory work um, in food and bev. So Caribou, through their different touch points, both solves problems and delivers joy. And I think they do it in a really smart way that's very authentic to themselves. In today's super busy world, how Mm -hmm. do you capture people's attention? And does it change for if it's delivering joy or if you're fixing a problem? It does change. And that is the hundred million dollar question, Travis. I mean, that is, that is what entire stacks of hundreds of people of teams at big companies are looking to solve, right? Like how do you, how do you make people care? And it, in my mind, it all comes back to, you know, bug spray or bacon. Like, are you solving a problem? Or are you delivering joy? But then it also comes back to how the brand is uniquely positioned to be the best option to solve that problem. Like I could go with a bunch of different options for coffee. Why do I go with caribou? And in that case, it comes down to, um, so how the brand is uniquely positioned to solve the problem. And then what the cultural and climate looks like, what the cultural climate looks like around that consumer. So if you are trying to push a product or a cause around November of an election year, I would argue you save your media dollars. Like it's just the media environment at that time is not only real dicey, just in general, if you've ever lived in a swing state, you get it, but it's also extraordinarily expensive and it make like a very well-intended, very um, strong creative spot for April may just feel off or cringy in an election November. So it's being really, really clear about the world your consumer lives in and how you can capture their attention and do it in a way that feels authentic. Because the reason clickbait is called clickbait is because it's not authentic. It's desperate. And its only goal is to make more money off of the ads that you're going to be served in the next page you're going to. Like straight up, clickbait is actually clickbait and it's for advertiser revenue, right? But if we can avoid being clickbait and we can tell a really compelling emotional story, whether that's a banner ad or a two minute Super Bowl broadcast spot that costs $12 million, most likely if it's two minutes, it's about being authentic and being aware of the rest of the world that your brand lives in. I think some brand builders can get really myopic and focused on, we have to do this goal for the brand. And it's part of my job as a strategist and, and um, well-rounded marketers have to step back and say, but okay, yes, we're 0.01% of this person's day, this message we're delivering them. So let's make sure it has the right media approach, the right creative, the sound effects are charming and not annoying. Like how do we think about all the different ways we're using the senses to interact with the consumer? Um, so a long answer, but a big question, Travis, that was a big question. I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Since you brought up Super Bowl ads, 12 million, $12 million. How does any, well, it's probably pretty accurate. I think it's probably more than that now. Um, so how can a brand like General Mills justify $12 million? Um, 
I don't think General Mills buys Super Bowl spots, just to be clear. <laughs> um, but a brand in general. Yeah. It's it's a really the Super Bowl is just the weirdest, um, most unique Olympics of advertising. Like some people have scorecards to gate to gauge which ads they think are the best. So the Super Bowl is really interesting. Some of it is, in my mind, we pay this amount of money to advertise because we always have. And it's the most captive audience an advertiser will have all year. Like the reason the price would be cheap if no one watched the ads, right? The price of an advertising medium is directly related to how many people will actually watch and interact with it. And the chances you have of them doing, performing the call to action in the ad. So any good ad should have, if not at least a brand logo flashed at the end. But in theory, whether it's called out, click here now on a banner ad, or it says, scan this QR code at the end of a Super Bowl spot. Any ad should have some implied or very clear, ideally, call to action. So the Super Bowl spots cost so much because it's a lot of guaranteed eyeballs. The most you'll get all year in any advertising medium. And there's a better chance people are going to do what you want them to do and sign up for the email newsletter or buy the avocado from Mexico or buy the Clydesdale edition Budweiser beer, right? So part of the reason advertisers do it is because it's ad industry credibility, in my mind. It's um, a huge way to have a part of the meaningful cultural conversation around advertising if you're playing the game of the Olympics, of the Super Bowl. And um, the other thing is it's a great, it's an expensive way, but it's a really good way to test and learn about how to drive action with your audiences. So in the era of COVID, uh, we saw QR codes come back because nobody wanted to touch a doorknob or a menu to order anything, right? So folks are now putting QR codes in broadcast spots with the hope that instead of typing in a long URL, because nobody likes to type anymore, they like clicking links and shortcuts, they'll whip out their iPhone and scan a QR code on the screen and go somewhere and perform an action. And all of that is trackable. So I think uh, some uh, some well-rounded commentary on Super Bowl advertising, but a lot of it is about scale and the cultural game um, that the brands are playing. One way I heard it explained is that when we're advertising, oftentimes it is important to hit the same people multiple times. Yes. But at the same time, if you have a direct to consumer, like you're selling toilet paper, well, you want to advertise to everyone kind of. Yes. <laughs> for the, I mean, you know, or in like theory, that's Coca Cola, right? So, Coca Cola, kids can take their own money and they can buy it at the sports game. Parents can take their own money and buy it at a sports game. Grandma can buy a Coke at a sports game. So, for Coca Cola, it would be different than, say, you know, a more, more niched um, product. So, Absolutely. they're able to like, advertise to everyone at once and make sure that that those viewers aren't overlapping and missing certain people. Yeah. I mean, the Super Bowl and any mass media buy is a great way to get at a lot of audiences at once. I also um, am frequently coaching my teams to be more specific in the consumer that they're targeting with their brand or their products. And one of the concerns, understandably, is like, is that too narrow of a target? Like, how many millions of people actually meet these three psychographic criteria? And my coaching and response back to the teams is if we have a more narrow target than we did last year, in theory, we're going to direct comms more efficiently to this target because we're not going to be spreading the peanut butter as thin to half of everybody, you know, but at the same time, media targeting isn't perfect, right? It's pretty good, but it's not perfect, especially with how um, 
first party data is becoming more valuable with the removal of app tracking technology and iOS. Like there are a lot of ways that media targeting is going to need to change to remain as accurate as it is. So if I'm going after small audience A, I think of this in concentric circles, and this is how I coach my teams. If we're going after a smaller audience in the center of the concentric circle, there's going to be some, some communications bleed out into more generalized audiences. I need a better term for that, Travis, but there's going to be some overflow communications that other folks hear that are also relevant to them because they're in a, you know, they're in the next, they make me two of the three core demographics. So sometimes if you have a media plan stacked in a certain way, you can target one audience and have spillover exposure to other audiences that might buy or take the action too. So that's where the real art and science of media planning and ad buying comes in because there are ways to target one group and also, you know, talk to others at the same time with an efficient spend. Mm. Yeah, it's the, I like a lot of storytelling. If you're trying to share a story of the, here's a character, here's the problem, right? Here's the, mm-hmm. the guide or here's it connects them and solves the problem or presents a plan. Let's go take action. Hero's journey kind of thing. Yes. If hero's you, journey. If you do that and you're targeting, this is a story of a child and it's a kid's book, right? The kid's book might translate to some other, you know, spill over to other audiences, yep. right? Yeah. So you can, you can target one demographic psychographic but that spillover it will still happen but it will be more powerful to that one person that you're targeting right and that's where the brand goals or the marketing goals and the business goals that's where bringing those two together is where we understand the risks and the draw the the benefits and the risks the assets and the liabilities whatever you want to call it associated with that approach like Mm -hmm. do we have such a small budget that we have to buy in a more general sense or we have to we have to design a product even that fits all of this criteria we might need to and that's fine because we're always learning right and like that should be any strong marketer's mindset is i am not an expert i am here to apply what i know and learn more so I can know more and then keep learning. Like learning is a cumulative effect. So in that case, we can say we're designing product for mass appeal and it might not have the best margin and we, but we, because it's mass appeal, we'll get great distribution on it or everyone needs. Um, I mean, in this case with a service like zoom, like we're designing a very wide, wide scale, easily accessible product everybody needs it if it's 2020. Right. And because it's not specialized to just a tech firm, just business, just, just individual users, everybody is open to buy a premium membership. And so what, what if let's play this out? What if zoom launched a one fee only membership and like everybody from general mills to a freelancer used it and paid the same price? they would probably learn pretty quickly that they could satisfy more customers and make a lot more money if they had a tiered membership pricing plan, right? Which of course they do. Like any app that's a service has that. Evernote has it, Google Workplace, Zoom, you know, like name a software that a company uses and there's a tiered plan. Meaning if I join Google Workplace, I'm probably paying, this is a guess, like somewhere between 10 and $15 a month to have like additional scheduling features, longer Google Meet calls, like all of those things. But if I am WPP, an agency holding group that has multiple huge agencies underneath it, I will not be paying $15 a month per employee to use Google Workspace. I'm going to be on an enterprise plan. 
And because I have thousands of users, I'm going to have a dedicated account and tech support team to help me make the best of these tools because I'm paying a lot of money for them. So I think um, in some ways you can design for mass market appeal and then learn and iterate quickly, or you can design for more niche appeal and count on the spillover effect. And there are solutions all in between, but it's really about strategies about making choices. So I coach my teams all the time. Like if we're not making choices and excluding someone or something, we're, we're most likely not going to achieve our more targeted business goals because the solution isn't equally as targeted. So it's, it's balancing the brand and business goals for everything. It's always balancing it, right? I mean, there are no solutions at the extremes, a motto for life. <laughs> when it comes to like storytelling and, Tell me, because like my background is in the video space, yes, right? Yeah, yeah, tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> well, well yeah, the video need, space, yeah. I don't need to dive on my whole background, um, mm-hmm. but I'm curious in your experience, mm-hmm. how has, um, you know, have, have you worked with video on either the small, the internal side mm-hmm. or the external facing? How, like, maybe you start with the external because that's what people are probably mm-hmm. familiar with mm-hmm. most, but how are you seeing video what's big and small look like video is so fascinating i learned early on in my career in the power i and i i tell this to my teams too like there's power and sight sound and motion and when you bring those three things together um because when more senses are engaged i think the more effective a message is so video is a really powerful storytelling medium it's getting more and more challenging to launch the right video campaign or effort or creative in one way and expect success. Like with the proliferation of media and channels, like now, like who would have thought 15 years ago, Travis, that a portrait style video in 15 seconds with a really weird ABBA remix was going to take over and be the basis for a social media network. Like it's continually keeping an open mind about what needs to be delivered. Um, and the media, the social media networks are like Meta and TikTok are constantly giving webinars to marketers about like, here's how to make the best out of our most recent algorithm changes because it's constantly changing. Um, I think there's also a time and a place for like a beautiful soaring classical score backed like aspirational brand ethos video. Because if you have someone's attention span and they're open to hearing the message, it can be a really powerful way to go from a functional solution or joy to a more emotional connection with the brand. So brands that can make an emotional connection beyond the functional benefits, it's really where we see brands move up kind of this pyramid of, of needs or solutions that they provide, like moving up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like going from functional to emotional is a big leap. And ideally that's where we want people because emotionally, People that are loyal to emotional brands are more resilient when the brand has a setback or a challenge and they're more likely to recommend to others, right? So that's where we want to be in the emotional space. Um, Internally, like, so that's kind of in the external environment. Internally, I coach my teams a lot when we're thinking about sight, sound, and motion to not hide behind jargon in creative and to get really candid to about the solution or the joy to really connect with people because they get industry talk and jargon and watered down language all day, every day. They get it at work. They get it in their personal life. So being able to be really candid and um, 
care about what they care about is really powerful. I'm also just a stickler for working with great creative and being really clear on like, what does the storyboard look like? What are, is the script appropriate? Is the voiceover with a, with talent that sounds engaging? Like all of these tiny decisions, you know, you're a creative, like all of these tiny creative decisions, like make or break what the final product is. And then the final thing I have to say a little bit selfishly, cause I'm really passionate about this. I am an inspiring ally. I say aspiring because ally is a title that has to be given to you by folks in marginalized groups. So like I'm doing my best to be a great ally, but I have to be called that by folks I'm allying, allying on their behalf. Right. And one of the ways that I'm working inside of general mills and I've, and I've worked on this effort my whole career is to make sure that whatever we're doing in a creative way is representative of the whole beautiful diversity of backgrounds and capabilities and disabilities and all of these things in the world. So for example, I ask when we're approaching a shoot or, um, I've done this early in my career when I said, okay, we have a photo shoot coming up. Is the studio accessible to wheelchairs and crutches? Are we thinking more about some, are we thinking about someone other than old white men for casting? Like all respect to that group of people, they're overrepresented in media and creative straight up. Are we thinking about hiring hair and makeup artists that can work with all different textures of hair and skin tones to get the best out of all of the great talent we have in the studio. So I'm really passionate about accessibility and, um, seeing, like I said, the whole breadth of the beautiful diversity of the world represented in creative because the advertising industry has a long way to go to make progress there. I am merely one person, but those are some of the standards that I ask my teams to operate by because, um, I want to always strive to be a better ally. The video space is probably similar to the advertising space. Yeah. And it is heavily white yep. men. Yep. There's more and more women, but it's still predominantly white. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure exactly if people could debate about what causes that, um, but it is something that you can intentionally like if you can intentionally hire to kind of compensate for that. Absolutely. And, and I think if we all kind of work on intentionally hiring crew or in creative or whatever that is, um, we can kind of, I think, create more. Like we can, we can change the, the balance, the pendulum where, that, where that, that fulcrum is in the industry each time we're hiring for projects. Absolutely. So. And it's incremental change, right? Like, like me, Let's pretend I'm hiring for a big, fancy, big budget brand video shoot, Ugh. calling it into my career. Let that be the day, right? I would love that. But um, I this is merely one shoot with one director, one casting lead, one makeup artist, one hairstylist. Like I have the power of just one set of decisions, right? But let me do the most that I can with that set of decisions. I'm not going to blindly hire only people of color or only XYZ demographic on that shoot. But I'll be damned if I'm not considering a wide variety of director candidates and then hiring off of their merit um, versus only considering people off of the resume they've already built. Like I want to see in someone the potential for their deep and incredible portfolio, but someone has to not even take a chance. Just say like, you're qualified. You may not have as much experience as this older person who has had access to more opportunities over the years for whatever reason, but... Um, I want, I want to give you a shot and I want to be part of your building your portfolio. And, you know, we could have many podcasts discussing this. Maybe we will one day, Travis, but, um, 
my encouragement to everyone is to use the power that you have, the decision-making, the influence that you have to speak up, especially when it makes you uncomfortable to be an ally, because the only way anything will change is if it starts to change with you. So that's what I'm really focused on. I'm really proud of some things General Mills is doing in this space to make sure that we have um, a variety of folks that we're considering for all of these creative decisions. We have a set of guidelines that we're using and I'm working with a team internally to make even more stringent and ambitious. So um, yeah, just encouraging everyone to step back and look at the power structures that are in place. Think about how you can disrupt them with the influence that you have and um, thinking about how we can make the creative space reflect all of the audience that the creative serves for two reasons. One, it's just the right thing to do. It really is. And two, and I put them in this order for a reason. One, it's the right thing to do. So do it just because of that. But two, I mean, countless firms and really impressive studies have been done over decades that show diverse teams make better choices and have better business outcomes. So let it start with you because we know there's going to be success. That's great. Thanks. I love that topic. I could talk about it all day. Yeah, it's something that I became a lot more open to through working with Creative Mornings. Love it. Yes, absolutely. Creative Mornings does a really nice job yeah. of having really representative folks on stage. Yeah. yeah. And it's like embarrassingly, like the first time you go to one of those and you're like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Like, this seems so like foreign. And then after you're like, okay, I, I get, I can be uncomfortable and be yes. okay with that. Yes. I'm always trying to like, guess what, Travis? I'm uncomfortable right now. This is my first podcast, you know, but I thought let's do something in the spirit of growth that makes me uncomfortable. And also I'm chatty. So like, I knew it would be fine. <laughs> um, but if we're not uncomfortable, we're not growing. Like all of the uh, fitness instructor mottos that say things like that are actually true. So in, uh, I think, um, making sure that folks feel like they have a safe place to be uncomfortable at work, that there's psychological safety. If they speak up and make different decisions with the influence they have, it starts with psychological safety. But if we can have a psychologically safe workplace, number one, and we have some influence over the way work is done or decisions or budgets are being allocated, like let's show up and, and get to work at being allies. So before we wrap things up, I just want to leave with like, how can people connect with you? How can people follow if they have any follow-up questions obviously i like to put things into the show notes and the yes, descriptions absolutely. so you can see that down below but how can people connect with you absolutely so um would love for folks to visit my linkedin profile my twitter and my instagram are a little bit more of a mess in terms of like you know pictures of my kids and stuff so linkedin is the best place to reach me um i'm listed as michelle brinton alchester because i still have love for my maiden name man you know it's, it's there in the middle so um my name is michelle brinton alchester you can search michelle chester brand strategy lead at general mills and then in the show notes maybe we can put my email address because i would love to get in touch with folks um small small side note i also love um i'm always focused on being the leader i needed when i was younger so i'm really um open and have greatly enjoyed being a resume and a career coach to some of my friends and family members and i also have um a resume review and um coaching business so would love if anybody wants support on telling a great story in their resume um hit me up i'd love to be part of your career journey awesome well, thank you so much for joining My us pleasure. today. My pleasure. This was so fun. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks, Travis.
And thank you again for watching today's, listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, uh, you know, click that like button, leave us some five stars. Uh, however that is, uh, when you engage with the content, whether that's leaving a comment, even just clicking on the copy, the link to this, that can actually boost the algorithm so this can get shared to more people. I know a lot of times it's it's hard to do the self-promotion. Totally. But one thing for me I realize is that when you think you have something that can help people, it's not about you promoting yourself. It's that you know that you're going to reach more people and help more people if you get the message out. So part of that is playing the algorithm game, right? Making sure that that in different platforms, whether that's the podcast directories, whether that's YouTube, whether that's Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, I could keep going on all I mean, day long. There's so more, many. there's, there's so like, you many. know, hundred different social media platforms, <laughs> but they all have an algorithm. And basically that means is that if you engage with the content, it says it's valuable. And so it will show it to more people. So, um, that's that. Um, so thank you for interacting with the content, however you choose to do so. Thank you for watching today, listening to today. And, um, yeah. I look forward to talking with you in the future sometime. Let's tell better brand stories. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Better Brand Story Podcast. This is a podcast all about helping brands learn how to tell better stories because you become a better brand when you learn how to tell a better brand story. Without further ado, let's dive in. Okay, cool. I think that's good enough.